We'll be in Micah chapter 7 this morning. We are just about halfway through this last chapter. Let's begin by reading verses 7 through 13. Therefore, I will look unto the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord, because I have sinned against him, until he plead my cause and execute judgment for me. He will bring me forth to the light, and I shall behold his righteousness. Then she that is mine enemy shall see it, and shame shall cover her which said unto me, Where is the Lord thy God? Mine eyes shall behold her. Now shall she be trodden down as the mire in the streets. In the day that thy walls are to be built, in the day, in that day shall the decree be far removed. In that day also he shall come even to thee from Assyria and from the fortified cities and from the fortress, from the fortress even to the river and from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. Notwithstanding, the land shall be desolate because of them that dwell therein for the fruit of their doings. Amen. Would you pray with me, please? Our Heavenly Father, we love you and thank you for this morning that we can gather together in freedom as a body of Christ. And we pray that you would bless our time together, that you would open our understanding, that we might understand the Scriptures, draw us closer to thee. And I pray that every class, uh, everyone will listen, pay attention. Thank you for every teacher right now that's uh, teaching your word. And so, Lord, bless, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we considered verse 7 last week. Remember in the, pre- the preceding verses, Micah's lamenting the lack of righteousness that's within the land. He said, don't trust your friends. Don't trust your family. Don't put your confidence in guides. And he said this, a man's enemies are the men of his own house. Some of you may have drove in that way this morning. <laughs> Amen. All right. And then in verse 7, he says, Therefore, because there is none upon this earth to trust and put our confidence in, Micah says, I will look unto the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. There's one relationship that will never fail us. Amen. Thank God for godly folks in our life. Godly spouses and friends and guides, all those things. And and there are good people that will help you in life. I'm not saying you can't ever have a friendship, amen? But listen, God is the only one who will never fail you. We're flesh and blood. We're sinners. We still have our faults. And so we will disappoint others and others will disappoint us. But thank God for our relationship with Christ who we can trust, we can have confidence in at all times. And so really the bottom line here is, here is don't let earthly relationships trump your relationship with God. Amen. Asaph concluded in Psalm seventy three twenty five, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon the earth that I desire beside thee. None on earth that I desire beside thee. So... Remember that looking unto the Lord we talked about last week is like a watchman who's standing upon a wall, peering off in the distance, leaning forward, trying to see um, anything that's approaching. 
And so we call unto God knowing that he delights in hearing from us. We learn to patiently wait for him, and we look for him in faith, believing that he will answer, that he will deliver. Um, God knows what you're going through. Still talking about what we went through last week. He knows what it's like to be surrounded by corrupt leaders, a corrupted governmental system. He knows what it's like for those close to him to betray him, his friends. He knows what it's like for his family to abandon him. His brothers mocked him. And then he, because he knows what we're going through, we should look to the one who was perfect while going through those things. Because he knows best how to navigate us through our difficult times. And it's interesting to me how when earthly relationships fall, uh, fall apart or somebody fails us in a relationship, it's interesting to me that many times the first place we'll turn is to another earthly relationship. And that just kind of boggles the mind. Don't put your confidence in that. Don't put your trust in that. Go to God, okay? All right. This brings us to where we left off last week. Look again at verse 8. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. I'm going to, take a, I'm going to give you a long introduction to this, this verse. Have you, have you ever taken notice of what happens when God's children declare to those around them that they're going to look unto the Lord and that they're going to wait for the God of their salvation. When we make that public statement and stand that that's who we're trusting, that's who we're looking to, those who were earlier disinterested in hearing from us about their need for God in their life, when we start making public statements like verse 7, then all of a sudden, the, the enemy, those around us, those on the fence, they perk up and take interest because they want to see if our God is real. Does He really deliver? Does He really hear? And it's just interesting that those who could have cared less before are now, oh, well, let's see if this happens. This is why it's very important if you make a verse 7 statement that you, you make sure going into that that you're going to wait. That's what he said. I will wait for the God of my salvation. You start going public with your Christianity, you're in a glass house, you're in a fishbowl, you're being observed, you're being watched. And that's fine. That's how God has intended it. Because man can't see the heart. Man looks on the outside. People always throw that around like it's okay, we can do whatever we want. No. It's actually a good thing to say, if man can't look at the heart, then man ought to be able to see our outward actions and see Christ in us. And so when we, when we make these kind of statements and we begin to proclaim to those around us that we're waiting on the Lord, we're looking unto God, He's going to hear me, <clears throat> you better be ready to wait. Others are always watching. They want to see, are you really going to be faithful to God? Because chances are, if you haven't learned this yet, God's not going to move in your time. <laughs> and you're going to be tested. And, and they're going to be watching you to see, do you really believe and trust in the God that you say you do? God said in Isaiah 49, 23, 
for they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. Keep waiting for God. You won't be ashamed. Isaiah 25, 9. And it shall be said in that day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for Him. And He will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. We will be glad and rejoice in His salvation. So keep waiting. Amen? Wait on God. See it through. We're so impatient. Now, the enemy, they come at us often with the disposition that God doesn't exist. That's kind of their mindset going into something like, if, if we say something like, we're going to wait on the Lord, we're going to look at Him. Many of them already have the, 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 the disposition that God isn't real. And, and some people just believe that if there is a God, He really is just mean for making you wait and go through whatever problem you're going through and that God isn't good to His people. But really what you'll find is people are just looking for an opportunity to ridicule you and to mock your God. Their problem is they don't understand how God works. And sadly, many times, believers don't understand how God works. People still believe, Christians still believe that God is some kind of genie in the sky that you can just go to and He'll grant you your three wishes. That's not how it works. Amen. When God doesn't do what some people want them to, in their time, they throw a Christian temper tantrum. Be still and know that I am God. This kind of God, in quotes, people want, that will just grant their wishes... They, they view calling upon our God, looking unto our God, waiting for our God, as if God should respond at the very moment we make a request, we go to Him, petition Him for help. The enemy doesn't know, so they can't perceive. Amen? They have eyes, but they perceive not, and ears, but they hear not. Therefore, when the living God, the one we have placed our faith and trust in, doesn't immediately appear strong on our behalf, our enemies are ready to seize an opportunity to belittle us for misplacing our trust in a God who either doesn't exist or is just upset all the time because we keep messing up. That's their mindset. Psalm 42.3, My tears have been my meat day and night while they continually say unto me, Where is thy God? Psalm 79, verses 9 in the first part of verse 10. Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of Thy name and deliver us and purge away our sins for Thy name's sake. Wherefore should the heathen say, Where is their God? Psalm 115 and verse 2. Wherefore should the heathen say, Where is now their God? Joel chapter 2 and verse 17, Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar, and let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach, that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? This is what bitter people do. Where is your God? People get bitter about the things of God. 
Because back when they wanted to hear from God, they didn't learn to wait. Where is your God? I knew He wouldn't show up. He never showed up for me. This is what people who believe there is no God do. This is what the enemies of God do. They look at those who are Christians in their afflicted state and they mock saying, where's your God now? I thought He could help you. Have you ever been there? I thought your God loved you. They're looking for an occasion to speak against God, but they don't understand God because they don't know God. They have no idea what it means to patiently wait upon God. They don't understand that as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are God's ways higher than ours and His thoughts than our thoughts. They can't see past what their idea of deliverance is. And that's the problem. We get an idea of what it should be like because we don't understand the Scriptures. Just consider Jesus when He was on the cross. Matthew 27, verses 39 through 43, And they that passed by reviled Him, wagging their heads, and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking Him and with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, Himself He cannot save. If He be the King of Israel, let Him now come down from the cross and we will believe Him. Listen to what they said. He trusted in God. Let Him deliver Him now if He will have Him. For He said, I am the Son of God. What was their problem? Their problem was they had their idea of what God's deliverance should look like. They were convinced that this this coming Messiah was going to give them political deliverance as if electing the right president's going to help. I'm all for godly leaders. But they had the idea that if we can get the the right guy, this Messiah, he's going to do what we want in our minds that we picture as deliverance. He's going to come in. He's going to bring us out from Gentile dominance and and we're going to live happily ever after. We're going to go back to the glory days of King David and King Solomon, and and, and we're going to have all our land back, and and we're going to just live happily ever after. That was their idea of a deliverance. So they, they knew Jesus. He looked to God the Father. They had heard His words. They had seen what He had done, and, and they were informed of His actions. They They knew that He looked... To God the Father, prayed to Him, patiently waited for Him, like verse 7. And while on the cross, they felt they now had an occasion to say to the one who claimed to be the Son of God, Where is your God? That's essentially what they were saying. They didn't put it in those words, but they said, He trusted in God, let Him deliver Him now. Jesus, if you really are the Son of God, come down from that cross. If you're the Son of God, why isn't God delivering you? Where is that God you've been telling us about? And what did Micah say at the end of verse 6? A man's enemy are the men of his own house. And Jesus' enemies were primarily those of the house of Judah, the tribe from which he came. And so Jesus knows what this is all about. But you see, the religious Jews, the Pharisees, the scribes, the elders that would walk by mocking God, 
the Son of God there on the cross. Um, they didn't understand God. They didn't understand His promises. Now, now hear what I'm saying, because I'm, I'm trying to shape this into a point. They, they had their idea of what deliverance was supposed to look like. But they didn't understand God's promises. They didn't understand that God was still at work while Jesus was on the cross. He certainly was at work, amen. He was working redemption. But, but they didn't understand that. They didn't understand that Jesus was being afflicted and smitten of God because He who knew no sin became sin for us. And they certainly didn't realize God was still working deliverance. And, and I tell you that to say, this is what still happens today. God, He afflicts us. He chastises us because of our sinfulness, because we go astray. And it's during that period of correction. It's during that time when God is, is afflicting us for our sins that the enemies of Christ will speak up and they'll say, where is your God? That's what they did to Christ. As He was being afflicted for becoming sin for us, they began to look at that and say, where's your God? And you see, we get off course from God and He has to afflict us to bring us back in line with Him. And it's during that time when we're over here and God's beginning to apply the rod of correction that people begin to look at our life and say, I knew your God wasn't real. But listen, they don't understand how God works. And sadly, many in church don't understand either. They didn't understand God was still at work. God, he, He's at work always, okay? And sometimes He brings deliverance in, in a different way from what our minds have preconceived God ought to do. God, you ought to do it this way. You ought to set up the kingdom. You ought to, you ought to break the, the Roman rule over us and you ought to do these things to the Gentiles and so on and so forth. You ought to establish your kingdom. He did. But it wasn't the one that they were looking for. He established a spiritual kingdom. Amen. And in establishing this kingdom, He did bring deliverance. They were looking for physical deliverance, but what did Jesus bring? He brought spiritual deliverance by bringing us redemption, by forgiving us of our sins, by washing them away in the blood of Christ for those who put their faith in Him. But they couldn't see that because they didn't know God. They didn't understand how He was working. And this is the kind of thing that was happening to Micah in his day and to his people how do we know this? Look at verse 10 just briefly. Notice what it says somewhere in this verse. Then she that is mine enemy shall see it, and shame shall cover her which said unto me, Where is the Lord thy God? You see, judgment's on the way because of their sinfulness. Captivity's on the way. And the enemies of God are going to look at that and say, Where's your God? I thought He was mighty to save. I thought He could deliver you. They're about, the house of Judah is about to go into a 70-year captivity. And so the, the enemies of God would look at that and, you know, all these people are going to die. And then a lot of them are going to die in the captivity. Where's your God, Israel? Where, where, where is the one that you, you said could deliver you? But God was still at work. God made a promise. He had already promised before the captivity, I'm going to bring you out. 
He named Cyrus by name 150 years before he was ever born and said, Cyrus, mine anointed. He's the one that's going to release you from captivity. The Persians came in, took over the Babylonians. He released them from captivity and allowed them to go and restore uh, the city. And so God was still at work. He was still bringing deliverance. It wasn't in their time and it wasn't how they may have wanted it. Same thing today. If we want to include the house of Israel in this, when they were taken captive roughly 125 years before the house of Judah, they were scattered among the nations. They essentially became Gentiles. They got intermixed with Gentiles. Well, how did God bring deliverance to them? It wasn't physical deliverance. It was spiritual deliverance because He came to make a new covenant with the house of Judah and the house of Israel. Your sins and iniquities will I remember no more. We are now partakers of that covenant, amen? Because those who are in Christ are Abraham's... Anyway, we, we are now partakers of that. And so God still was at work. He still was bringing deliverance. And, and I need to remind all of us this morning, I want you to understand that while God may afflict us, it is always for our good. That's hard to understand when we're going through it. But don't view affliction as a negative thing. Listen, God has not forsaken you in your affliction. But it is part of how God works in our life at times to teach us more about Him, teach us more about ourselves, who we really are, how we need to come in line with God. So when God is afflicting us, it's a good thing. Psalm 119, verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now have I kept thy word. Psalm 119, 71, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. But we got a group of Christians, a pocket of Christians who say, It's not good. It's not good that I go through trouble. That's not what the Bible says. Psalm 119, verse 75, I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right, and that thou hast in faithfulness afflicted me. <laughs> the, the affliction of God comes into our life, not because He's mean, but because He's faithful. And He's trying to get us to see Him. He wants us to learn to keep His words, to learn His statutes, and to learn that His judgments are right. God's affliction is God working in our life. It is not Him casting us aside. And it is God's faithfulness which leads us to His affliction. Amen. So I would just, I would just say this. Don't grow bitter in affliction. Grow better. That's what correction is supposed to do. Right? We want to correct behavior. Amen. So try to learn what God is teaching you and trust God at all times. Now, our enemies are not always those from without. I'm still working up to verse 8, okay? I tell you, I get stuck on these things. Our enemy is not always from those without the walls of the church. Isn't that sad? Because our enemies can be those of our own house, Micah said. Unfortunately, the kind of ridicule I've, I've spoke about, it's not just from the lost. It can also come from those within, from those who say they are the children of God. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. I'll let God make that determination. Amen. But listen to Psalm 42 and verse 3 again, but then I want you to listen to verse 4, which follows it. 
My tears have been my meat day and night, while they continually say unto me, Where is thy God? Listen, when, he says, When I remember these things, I pour out my soul in me. For I had gone with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God. With the voice of joy and praise with a multitude that kept holy day. Who are the ones that the psalmist, who I believe is most likely David, but who is the one the psalmist is saying, are the ones saying, where is thy God? It wasn't the enemies. It wasn't those from without. It wasn't the world. But it was those who went with Him to the house of God. It was those who professed God and they even honored the holy day. Therefore, those who we go to church with, they can ridicule us at times. See also the book of Job. Kept quiet for seven days, they should have just kept quiet. But you know how our flesh is, we can't help it. Let me tell you what your problem is, Job. Even those from our own house, the household of faith, can become our enemies. Not necessarily because we're fighting with them, but because they're just mad at us. And like Psalm 42, it can be very hurtful. And it's very sad when the ridicule comes from within. That's why many are out of church today. They've been hurt in church. What a shame. Just this past week, I had someone call me and my wife a joke from within. That feels good, doesn't it? Came to us for help. Didn't like what was said. (laughs) A lot of very hurtful things were said. And I wouldn't go into detail, I guess, but um, it hurts when it's those from within that you've invested your life in, that you've kept Holy Day with, that you walked to the house of God with, and then all of a sudden they smack you upside the head with all kind of accusations and things and, and it's those from within it's just been a rough week in the ministry amen <laughs> anyway it was ridicule and mocking from those who come to the house of God and all I can do in a time like that and all I can encourage you to do as well is to go back to verse 7 therefore I will look unto the Lord I will wait for the God of my salvation my God will hear me we allow God to work. Amen. We don't get in the flesh and try to, um, anyway, give space for God to work. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. And, and by the way, as people of God, we're not supposed to rejoice over our enemies. Proverbs 24, verses 17 and 18, Rejoice not when thine enemy falleth, and let not thine heart be glad when he stumbleth, lest the Lord see it, and it displease him, and he turn away his wrath from him. What's the Bible saying? God's going to handle it. But the moment you start trying to handle it, God may just turn what He had in store for them away from them. Let God work. You don't have to get, it. You don't have to get in there and start throwing accusations back. But just God bless you. We're here for you. We love you. Well, that was the long way around to show why Micah says here in verse 8, Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. What what is he saying? Don't joy, don't be glad, don't make merry, don't be cheerful because of God's affliction upon us. You may be asking, Micah saying, you may be asking, 
Where is your God? But I know that God hasn't cast us off. And I'm looking to Him, and I'm waiting for Him. I'm still crying out to Him because I still believe He hears me. But remember that the enemy is looking for an opportunity to ridicule, to rejoice over us. Listen to what Jesus said about His soon death in the, in the Gospel according to John. John 16, verses 20 through 22. Verily, verily, I say unto you that ye shall weep and lament. He's talking about you're, you're going to be in sorrow because I'm going to be put to death. He says, you shall weep and lament. But what did he say next? But the world shall rejoice. Ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow, because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish. For the joy that a man is born into the world. And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again. And your hearts shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. You see, Jesus, of course, understood that the world would rejoice because of His death. But He essentially is encouraging His followers to do verse 7. Look unto Me. Keep looking for Me. Keep seeking for Me. You will see Me again. What a blessing. And while they were being forced to wait. Did you catch that? They were being forced to wait. The world would take advantage of that time. That time of affliction, if you will. The world would take advantage of that time to rejoice over their supposed enemy because he's now in the grave. I hope you're seeing how all this works. In Revelation 11, we have the account of the two witnesses who preached God's Word for 1,260 days or 42 months or three and a half years. <laughs> Take your pick. I didn't have time to break it down to hours, seconds, and minutes. When they are finished, the Bible says the beast will overcome them and kill them. Revelation 11.10, And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them, their dead bodies. They shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. They're not even going to give them a burial. They're going to leave them lying in the streets in the street of Jerusalem, the city that is called Sodom and Egypt, Revelation 11 says. And then God's going to raise them back up. Could you imagine? Wouldn't that be great to see? Amen. What am I getting at? Don't think it's strange when your enemy rejoices over you. Micah went through it. You're going to go through it. Jesus obviously went through it. Don't think it's strange. It happened throughout the Bible. But don't let the haters deter you from staying faithful. Yeah, I know the disciples, they didn't understand all that was going on. And you may not understand all that you're going through. Keep your eyes on the Lord. You will see Him. He will deliver. He will hear. You'll see Him by faith. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Next we see in verse 8, Micah reminds them not to rejoice over him because he says, When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. And for what it's worth, some people see this statement here by Micah as being representative of the whole of Israel now speaking. Him kind of speaking on their behalf, I don't know. It doesn't matter to me. It doesn't change the meaning. 
When the enemy witnesses God's people fall and sit in darkness, they rejoice and they say, I knew it. I knew your God wasn't real. I knew your God couldn't deliver you. But what they don't see are all the sinful choices we made that led to the affliction. Amen. Let's, let's be real. But see, the enemy doesn't always see all that because again, they can't see, they can't perceive. And so, they don't understand that really what's happening in our life is a result of our own decisions. God's just not going to bring you through affliction just because. He's got a purpose. He's got a point. And so, while they're, they're looking for that opportunity to mock, they don't understand that really you've reaped what you've sown. That's what happened to Israel. That's what's happened in my life and yours. But people want to say, see, I knew your God didn't love you. I knew he couldn't keep you from falling. And many times, the enemy, they can't wait to circulate that news. And boy, can you circulate stuff fast today, amen? They can't wait. They can't wait to go public with the fall of a child of God. That's part of their rejoicing in verse 8. When Jonathan was killed in battle, and when Saul killed himself being defeated in battle... David said in 2 Samuel 1.20, Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ascalon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. Micah, if you'll remember, <laughs> four years ago in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, I know you don't remember, but this is what it says, For her wound is incurable, for it is come unto Judah... He has come unto the gate of my people. This is, the Assyrians had got to the gate of Jerusalem. He has come unto the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. Micah said, declare ye it not at Gath. Weep ye not at all. In the house of Arphaph, roll thyself in the dust. Whatever the reason for the fall of the child of God, understand this morning, you're not going to stay in that condition forever. Whatever the chastisement, whatever the affliction you're going through, whatever it is God is, is working, you're not going to stay there forever. Because even if you die in your affliction, you're going to heaven. Whoop! Praise God. The redeemed will be united with God for all eternity. But listen to some of these verses. Psalm 37, verses 23 and 24. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. For the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. Psalm 145 verse 14, The Lord upholdeth all that fall, and raiseth up all those that be bowed down, those who learn to humble themselves in the affliction. And just to be clear, we're not talking about falling from grace or losing your salvation. Once we are in Christ, we have been granted eternal life. Amen. How does eternal life end? Amen. It's a contradiction of terms to say you can lose the thing. We've been granted eternal life. We've been given His righteousness, which is everlasting. But what we are talking about here is when we, when we are falling out of fellowship with God. Don't split hairs with me about falling and walking and all that. When, when we get out of fellowship with God, and, and we're, we're going through afflictions and distress by divine appointment due to our sinfulness... And we could also apply this to being led astray by the temptations of Satan. As we have seen in this verse, I just read from the Psalms, 
This happens even to good men because none of us are perfect. Amen. We've been made good in Christ. That's the only way we're good. But even those in Christ can still slip and fall. They can still make stupid decisions. And they can still wreak or make havoc of their life, make shipwreck of their life, the Bible says, of their faith. Proverbs 24, 16, For a just man falleth seven times and riseth up again. And, and, and i got to hurry. Micah said at the end of verse 8, When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. Um, and again, I don't think this is talking about an unregenerated state here or a state of utter darkness, though some were and would remain in that condition from within Israel. I, I believe this is primarily speaking to that remnant who still fit verse 7, that are still looking unto God and waiting for Him. So this is speaking of the darkness from their affliction and, dist- and distress. But if we don't have time to finish this lesson, you've got to get this point, okay? I want, you to, I want you to catch the wording here in verse 8. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. Catch this now. He doesn't say, after the darkness will come the light. When. I'm in darkness. The Lord will be a light unto me. No matter our outward position, our outward lot in life, the Lord is still our light. And catch this now, because in reality, it's important if you're going to mature in in God that you understand this, because in reality, the sitting in darkness was the occasion by which they saw the light. Are you catching this? It's important you know this. Isaiah 9, 1 and 10, Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation. Blah, 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 blah. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan and Galilee. Anyway, this is what it says. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. That was a prophecy of Jesus' arrival. 400 years after Malachi, there was nothing being said for 400 years after Malachi. And so there's all this silence, there's this darkness, if you will, in between Malachi and Christ's arrival, but he was the light that they would see while in their darkness. Matthew 4, 13 through 17 is a fulfillment of Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. The people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I didn't read all the verses, but that was a condensed there. Why does God bring us into periods of darkness and distress and affliction? Why does God do that? It's because His light will shine brighter when we're in darkness. This is why I'm not concerned in the state of the world today, because the light of the gospel will just be that much more radiant. He, God wants us to learn that His Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. But in order to learn some of these things, sometimes you have to get to a position where you can see nothing else but that. Looking unto the Lord. And, and God brings you through these things because He wants you to learn more about Him. Peter said, We have a more sure word of prophecy as unto a light that shineth in a dark place. For those of us who have gone through the darkness and waited patiently for God and who did not give up along the way, we can now testify that we have learned more about God during the times of darkness than we did when everything was just going fine. We learn more about God in us during those times. 
And listen, God may bring us to a place of darkness, as it were, not utter darkness, but what, what we're talking about in context here in Micah. But it is there that God works in our life. And while there, He shows us that He is the light. I wish I had time to give you my testimony from North Dakota, but you talk about a dark place. And, and literally in the winter, amen, it's 400 more miles north. It's miserable. Anybody from North Dakota this morning? Okay, good. South Dakota's way better, amen. Um, everything south is better, but anyway. That means i got to stop, doesn't it? Don't give up on God. I guess that's what I'm saying. Don't give up. You may be afflicted. You may be in distress. But God is just teaching you to walk more closely with Him and to trust Him more. Sorry that went a little long. Let's pray. 